0: To the Maniculum. pointing the finger at the Middle Ages, we bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes.
1: Welcome to this year's Thanksgiving special on medieval food. In addition to our
2: normal episode, Zoe has. Recorded a video of her kitchen adventures in making this dish. By the time this episode comes out, you should be able to see that video from our website. Just go to the dot and navigate to the blog entry for this episode. If it's not there, then well, time makes fools of us all. I promise we're working on it. We're doing our best. Do check back. And now, episode.
0: So this is an eventful episode, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it is. I mean, we're coming into the holiday season, there's lots of cheer, there's food poisoning, which will be our primary topic of discussion.
2: Oh, did you uh miss make your chicken?
0: No, actually, it turned out very well. So I'm very pleased <laughs> with it. But it is, I suppose it is for want of appetite. So you can use this in your uh, in your cooking if the turkey comes out really badly. Yes. All right. So this is our second annual Thanksgiving episode. Anything to add for the intro?
2: If you were coming here hoping, for more Vikings, we'll do it next time. We got distracted by food.
0: (laughs) We did get distracted by food, but that's the best kind of being distracted. Or rather, we
2: might do it next time. I'm not promising anything.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Alright, so this episode was basically inspired by one of the Leech's Corners that we did a while back, which had a recipe that I sort of offhandedly said, like, oh, that might make a good chicken marinade. Like, that doesn't actually sound that bad, and decided eventually to make it. And so it happened to coincide with everything um, that went on and worked out with Thanksgiving. So we're doing a food episode for Thanksgiving, because that's my favorite part of Thanksgiving is food.
2: Yeah, I just want to say that when I went back and looked over that recipe in order to try and make it, one of my thoughts was was, why on earth did Zoe think this would make a good marinade? What kind of bizarre tastes did Zoe develop living in Alaska?
0: (laughs) I mean, there's that. I feel like there's also the fact that I I have a very German taste in food, since that is my heritage. So we have a lot of weird family recipes. Like, I really enjoy liverwurst, which is not most people's favorite thing. My grandfather's favorite food is, like, pickled pig knuckles, so. I feel like that's just a southern
2: thing, though. (laughs) It may also be a German thing.
0: I don't know. I know a lot of Germans came down to Texas, but I don't know.
2: Were they looking for souls to steal?
0: (laughs) Really, that was the devil.
2: Insert colonialism joke.
0: You know, fair enough. Okay, so, I mean, that is on theme with Thanksgiving. Anyway, regardless. (laughs) 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 Oof. So there were also a couple of responses to one of the little social media questions that I chucked out which was, do you guys have any medieval food-related questions?
2: Yes, there were.
0: So, I feel like we'll get to those a little bit later. Should we first go over the recipes that we made? Sure. All right, so here's, so here's what I'm thinking. We go over the recipes that we made that our audience might already be a little bit familiar with. And then because I got really deep down this rabbit hole, I really like medieval cooking, and I really like reenactments, things like that. So I have a little horde of resources for medieval cooking. And we can go over some recipes that I found there that I think would also be interesting. And then we can answer some of these
2: questions. All right, that sounds good. I know less about medieval cooking because I'm not, I'm not really a food person.
0: That's, that's fair. I mean, you have enough taste to know that you're a vegetarian.
2: Yeah, but that's more of a ecological thing.
0: That's fair. Alright. So I believe that I copied the recipe correctly. This is from Leech Book 2, correct? Yes. So I won't read the whole thing, cause this has three parts to it. I'll just do what we covered for the recipe. So again, for want of appetite for food, take southern cumin, moisten it with vinegar, then dry it and rub the pieces in a mortar. And of fennel seed and of dill. Three spoon measures, rub it all together, add of pepper. Three spoon measures and leaves of rue seven spoon measures and the best strained honey one pint titurate or stir all together. Eke it out then with vinegar as may seem fit to thee, so that it may be wrought into the form in which mustard is tempered for flavouring. Then put it into a glass vessel. Then with bread or with whatever food thou choose, lap it up and make use of it. Even though thou shouldest sup it with a spoon, that will help. So that is the recipe in whole. And obviously, I mean. They do give you measurements, which is something that a lot of medieval recipes don't do. So props there. But I did adapt it and write it in such a way that you can recreate it at home and not actually use a pint of honey because that is a lot of honey. That's... That's more than one of those little bears of honey. Yeah,
2: I did a a half pint.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Do you want to go first or shall I go first?
2: You go first because you probably... No, I'll go first because I probably did it bad. And so you can explain how you did it better.
0: (laughs) I feel like there's not really a bad way to make this. And we're both still sitting here and we're alive, so... I think we did okay.
2: Yeah, Although the reason I'm alive might be because I only had a little bit of it.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. All right, go for it.
2: All right. So the recipe is clearly expecting you to have cumin in like solid whole form, which obviously I couldn't find at the local grocery store.
0: Oh, really? I did.
2: Really? I couldn't. Oh, interesting. I assumed it was also three spoon measures. Uh, as with the dill and the fennel seed, I decided that a spoon measure should be roughly equal to a tablespoon. And then since mm-hmm. I only had half a pint of honey, I used a half tablespoon. So I put in three half tablespoons of powdered cumin and then a little bit of vinegar because it's supposed to be there, I guess. <laughs> and then I ground up some fennel seeds and dill in my little mortar here.
0: Oh, very nice. I didn't have a mortar, so I had to improvise a little bit.
2: I have one because sometimes my dog is very stubborn about eating her pills. And so the last resort is to grind them up and mix them in with her wet food, which Ooh. is not ideal because like it's it messes up the release speed, but sometimes it's the only way to get her to eat
0: them. That's fair. And if you got to do it, you got to do it.
2: So I ground up some fennel and dill in it, and then I spent a really long time slaving over a pepper grinder to get three spoon measures of pepper.
0: Yeah, yeah. Understandable.
2: And according to the websites you sent me, two possible Mm -hmm. replacements for roux, which I could not find in the grocery store because we don't really use it in Western cuisine anymore. Yeah. One of them said dandelion leaves and one of them Mm -hmm. said rosemary and black pepper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It seemed like the dandelion one was from like a more cookery focused source and the rosemary was from a more like spiritual focused source. Yeah. So I figured that maybe rosemary doesn't really taste the same. Maybe it just has the same like aura or whatever. I'm not a witch. I don't know. So I did do a
0: little digging about that. Oh, actually, But I'll, I'll get to that.
2: All right. So I decided to use dandelion leaves because I have a bunch in my yard. So that was fun.
0: Oh, that's so cool.
2: So I just chopped a bunch up and then put seven spoon measures in. Then I poured in half a pint of honey. And my best interpretation of triterate, I did actually look up the original Old English word and it didn't help much, was blend. Uh, So I attempted to use my like stick blender that I use for soup. Oh my gosh did not work work? very well.
0: Yeah, no. Oh, no. I I think the mixture was too thick.
2: No, no, it didn't break it. It just didn't work. Okay. But it did stir it up a bit. So I figured that was good enough. And eek it out with vinegar is a weird cocaine translation. What it actually means is add vinegar. Mm -hmm. Uka, which is the word he's trans... Because he's doing the cognate. Uka in that sense just means augment with. So Mm -hmm. that that whole like eek it out with vinegar thing basically translates to add vinegar until it's kind of a mustardy consistency. Right. Which I did. And I used malt vinegar because I figured that would be the most likely thing for your random medieval leech in England to have on hand. Originally, vinegar... Was mostly like spoiled alcoholic beverages.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So malt vinegar would be from like grains, and wine vinegar is from wine.
0: Oh, yours is yours is fairly much more accurate than mine, then, because I couldn't find malt vinegar, and I went with like I was like we'll go with balsamic vinegar because it's a really bougie recipe, I guess. <laughs> so this is a bougie leech, <laughs> for my for my recipe.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's actually where the word vinegar comes from. It's some romance language. I forget which French, but it means sour wine. Mm-hmm. The Old English word is "eked," acid.
0: Nice. I feel like that would also change some recipes if you start reading stuff as go add a little acid. Yes. You know, I of newt some acid, let it bubble. Now
2: whether that's battery acid or LSD is up to you and your. <laughs> shamanic leanings. Use at your own risk. Also worth noting, this means that when people refer to like the, the substance in vinegar as acetic acid, that does literally translate as acidy acid.
0: I love that. There's so many words like that. I love finding those.
2: Yeah. And then, since I wasn't going to use it as a chicken marinade, I just did as the recipe said, and I put it on some bread, and I ate it.
0: <laughs> you sound it disappointed. It certainly
2: had a flavor. <laughs> I can't describe that flavor because it's a mixture together of a lot of things with very strong and very different flavors. And I feel like they all cancel each other out and just like short circuited (laughs) my tongue.
0: It's a very warm sort of flavor, though. I found it to be very warm. I don't
2: know. I couldn't even decide whether or not I liked it.
0: <laughs> well, see, that's amazing to me because it, it sort of gets at how different our tastes have changed over the years. And I guess, you know, maybe that we're so used to processed food and sugars and, and all that stuff because we have it all the time.
2: I mean, this was a very sugary recipe. It was just the sugar was from honey. True,
0: It's honey. Yeah. I don't know if that's yeah. the same
2: kind of sugar or not. I'm not a chemist.
0: That's fair. I was worried oh, it was going to be
2: awful because I cannot stand fennel, but yeah, it, it, the fennel seemed to be kind of dominated by everything else, so it, it it yeah was palatable.
0: If you know, fair enough. Oh my gosh. Okay, so for for my attempt at this recipe, I sort of, I guess, I suppose I I anachronized it a little bit. I mean, I did use balsamic vinegar. I've already divulged that, but I wanted to I wanted to see if I could make it as appetizing as possible while staying true to the recipe. So I also wasn't sure whether it was talking about full fennel seed or not, because it didn't say to grind the fennel and dill together. That was only the cumin. And so I used whole fennel seed and I did have some dried dill at home so that I had homegrown. So that was fun. Got to use some homegrown dill. But I did use pre-ground cumin because I didn't have a mortar and pestle myself. So I added that. I did the same thing with the spoon measure. So I did like a heaping teaspoon, which is about half a tablespoon because I also halved it and basically put the cumin, put the fennel seed and the dill all together and then added rosemary and oh, and the pepper, of course. And I added the rosemary instead of the rue. Rue itself, I did some research on this plant. You can buy dried rue on Amazon, but it was extraordinarily expensive and it also has some harmful properties. It can cause abortions, cause menstruation issues. So in order to make this recipe as accessible as possible, I opted for the rosemary. Now, the reason I chose the rosemary as opposed to the dandelion was that rue has a more bitter flavor. So I thought, okay, dandelion leaves are fairly bland. So I'll go for the rosemary. Plus, we're a little bit more used to eating rosemary than we are dandelion. So I went ahead and used the rosemary. Plus, it's something that's fairly easy to find and to get in your local grocery stores, at least in America. I don't live in a place where a lot of dandelions grow. So (laughs) I don't have a lot of dandelions around.
2: I'm actively confused by that sentence. I didn't know there was any place in the continental US that wasn't dandelions.
0: I mean, our neighborhood is fairly well manicured and a lot of it has stretches that are like decorated with cactus. Mm-hmm. And so it's more like the gravel, sort of deserty looking, you know, view as opposed to like grass and weeds popping up. So we don't really have dandelions. That's fair.
2: A lot of my neighborhood is well manicured too, but I have been intentionally cultivating dandelions and other wildflowers out of both ecological convictions and to annoy my neighbors.
0: That is so valid. I love wildflower yards. I think those are just... I
2: actually have like one of the one of the spots outside my fence. I have like a little sign up that says "Dandelion Garden." Just just so oh! they know that I did it on purpose.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that, that sort of goes back to the idea that weeds are only what we think of as weeds. Yeah. You know, which I like. Dandelions are pretty. And they have historically had a lot of health purposes. And you can throw them in a salad, an everyday salad. Just be careful about, you know, pesticides and so on and so forth. Don't just go out into your yard, yeah, and grab some dandelions. Do make sure you wash them. Anyway, so I combined all of that together and I didn't want to use a whole chunk of honey. So I used about half a pint, maybe a little bit less of honey and put that in together. I mixed it and combined it all together. It was a very thick consistency. I found it very satisfying. And at that point, I figure when it says to titurate it, I suppose you could grind it again in a mortar and pestle just to get all that fennel seed and dill down, which I think I would do if I were doing this again, or I would just use pre-ground fennel. I did find the fennel to be a little strong when I was tasting it. So maybe dial back the fennel, a little bit, but then again, I don't use much fennel in my cooking anyway. I have some Maltese friends they use fennel in like everything. So if you really like fennel, go for it.
2: I'm making a note not to go to Malta.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They've got other wondrous foods, but they do use a lot of fennel. Anyway... I mixed it all together. Then I did add my bougie balsamic vinegar into my concoction there until it became more of a ground mustardy consistency. And instead of putting it into a glass vessel, I dumped it onto some chicken breast that I had and baked it in the oven. Or Well, I I let it sit overnight in the fridge. Then I took it out and baked it in the oven. And it actually created this lovely golden crust over the chicken. And once you move some of the fennel seeds out of the way, and you kind of move the bigger pieces of rosemary out of the way, because you still get those flavors within the marinade. That's why you leave it in there overnight. But once you sort of move those chunks away, it's actually a very nice flavor. How would I describe it? There's lots of recipes for like balsamic honey chicken on Pinterest. It seems like it's very much like a 30 minute meal sort of Pinterest recipe that you find. And I'm like, okay, so I've had that before and I didn't like it. I actually enjoyed this much more than the modern balsamic honey chicken recipes that I have made previously. Because you get this lovely little crust, you get more of the spices, you get the pepper, you get the cumin. A little bit of the fennel was fine. The dill was great. I enjoyed it. I would maybe tone down some of the spices, but maybe that's just because I'm, you know, white and can't deal with spicy food.
2: Yeah, like I, I wasn't going like to say it, I have a as higher soon tolerance. as you said, like, maybe I'd tone down some of the spices, I'm like... Shh. Zoe, you're letting your white show.
0: Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I know. I'm sure my, my Punjabi friends would be like, what are you talking about? It's amazing. But no, I am white. Even though I have like developed, I don't know, I feel like I've developed some, some love for really spicy curries and stuff and... I don't know. It made me very sad when I was in Ireland because they didn't have anything that was very spicy. But this was this was still a little much in terms of spice. So on the scale of like your your mom's Indian curry recipe from like a real Indian home to like Irish food, this is closer to Indian mom recipe.
2: In terms of spiciness or just in terms of flavor intensity?
0: In terms of flavor that intensity. Makes sense.
2: That makes me was going to yeah. say like it, like the only thing in there that I'd describe as spicy is the pepper. Anyway. That's better, fair. Better that's way.
0: fair. I suppose spicy in that it uses spices. But no. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I think it goes really well with chicken. I ate it with chicken and broccoli, so that was fantastic cuz I feel like it didn't overpower everything. Whereas on a piece of toast, you know, it might have might have been like Vegemite that's just too much.
2: <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs>
0: It's a lot. It's a lot. But regardless, uh, we will post that video of mine and the recipe in both its more original translation form and our modern edition with all of our notes on the blog. So look out for that. So yeah, definitely check that out. I had a lot of fun doing this and in doing some digging through all of these other recipes and stuff, I was like, oh man, I wish I had more time to make some of these other recipes. So maybe we will have to do this again. Yeah. I really enjoyed yeah, we it.
2: Yeah, could, we could make it a regular thing, or you can make it a regular thing. <laughs>
0: I'll be the test kitchen. You see kitchen. more
2: more about this whole food thing than I am.
0: Aren't you doing your dissertation on food?
2: I mean, it's part of it. I haven't I haven't gotten to the Middle English like cookbooks section.
0: Mm-hmm. I've
2: gotten sidetracked by some like linguistics theory because my methodology chapter is due soon.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, those deadlines are important.
2: Yeah. Oh, I did actually make a second simpler recipe though while I was doing this.
1: Ooh.
2: This is one I posted on Twitter back in the summer as like, oh, this is this is something neat. I found while doing my research.
0: Okay, yes. And
2: this is from the Laknunga or Lachnung Lach- Yes. Yeah.
0: I know what you're talking about. Yeah.
2: I don't know how to say it properly, but it let me basically means remedies. Lak is leech. Uh, the leechings is basically what it translates as.
0: Laknunga. Which is one of the digitized manuscripts on the British nice. Library, so you can check it out.
2: Yeah, and it's—I've been describing like Leech Book Three as the less classically influenced version of the Leech Book. The Lacnunga is a step further. I don't think it has barely any classical influence, mm-hmm. but I found a short and simple recipe that struck me as a good idea, and it reads as follows. For heaviness of the mind, give to eat radish with salt and vinegar. Soon the mood will be more gay. Oh, that is very simple. Yeah. And I was like, hey, modern medicine hasn't given me any antidepressants that work for s***, so I'm going to eat some fucking salty radishes and see if it helps.
0: <laughs> and your review... <laughs>
2: it was delicious I don't know if it I don't know if it's healed my depression or if I'm more gay in <laughs> any sense of that word but I will keep you posted on all of that
0: you were at least temporarily more gay in terms of you were in a good mood while you were eating the radishes right.
2: because they were so yes. nice they I, I highly recommend it it is actually very good
0: oh fantastic
2: if you like salt and vinegar
0: yeah but doesn't everyone eat the crisps like the salt and vinegar
2: crisps yes took me a second to realize you were using the brew. British English there. And I was like, the what? Oh,
0: the, uh, the chips. Chips. The potato chips. Yes. yes. I apologize. It sticks sometimes.
2: Yeah, I know. Ireland.
0: You go there once and you're just stuck. Completely stuck.
2: I grew up in Maryland where salt and vinegar on your fries are pretty standard, though. Or mm-hmm. to, to, to Irish, on your chips.
0: Yes. <laughs> your tips. So it
2: was, it was a fairly <laughs> regular thing for me. I always put salt and vinegar on my fries. So that's why I had malt vinegar available.
0: Oh, yeah. That'll do it. That'll do it.
2: Works well on it's radishes. It's very good. I recommend it.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's also a good food to pickle.
2: I have had pickled radish. It's not bad.
0: Yeah, I, I really enjoy pickled red onion, but that is neither here nor there. Okay. Shall I get into my list of resources here? Yes, let's do it. All right. Let me pull up my little list here. So I found several things that we can go through, sort of a a quick review. So, I found three books that you can actually get. The first one is How to Cook a Peacock, which is actually a translation of an old medieval French cookbook, which is, I'm going to botch the pronunciation, but here we go. Le Viander by Televent. It looks like t- Tail Event is what it looks like. Tail Event. Um, or
2: La Viander by Tail Vent. <laughs>
0: yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, by translated by Jim Chevalier. It is a pretty faithful translation of this old French cookbook with lots of recipes. There's not too much help on the exact measurements that you should use. So like I said earlier, a lot of medieval cookbooks are very short. They're very much to the point. There's It's not like Joy of Cooking where it's like, now use three tablespoons of butter. Or if you don't have butter, you can use lard. It's not like that. It's just like, okay, you know, take your eel, cut it in half, add some stuff, cook it. That's basically all you get.
2: It's like the dire version of your grandmother's recipes, where she's just like, add a pinch of salt. Like, how much salt? A pinch.
0: A pinch. Feel it in your heart and determine how much. So, oh, I totally got this wrong. It is not by Tale Event that is actually part of the title. Uh, It is Le Viande de That's as close as I'm gonna get. And it's credited to Guillaume Tyrell. So apologies there, but I did find it. And the earliest known version of the work was written about 1300, so he probably ended up getting a copy of it and added to it and adapted to it and so on and so forth. It is one of the best known recipe books of the Middle Ages which goes alongside the Liber de Coquina, which is a Latin text, and also the English form of curry, which I will also talk about.
2: I assume the Liber de Coquina is a book about those little shellfish that live in the intertidal zone, you know, the colorful ones. <laughs> coquinas is the pun for anyone who's staring weirdly at their phone. <gasps> oh, They're called coquinas.
0: I like. I love that. Uh, from, from the Latin word, the coquina itself is the book of cooking or cookery. So that is a good translation of that French text. If you're looking for it, once again, it's called How to Cook a Peacock by Jim Chevalier. So if you don't know French, but you want to explore it, that's one option.
2: And the recipe in its entirety is thoroughly. You must cook zip peacock thoroughly.
0: <laughs> that's all you get.
2: Maybe take off the feathers. Yeah, you know. <laughs> or not. I'm not a cop.
0: I feel like they would not last very long in the oven.
2: They're, uh, seasoning. <laughs> seasoning.
0: Seasoning. <laughs> No. Alright, the next one that I have is the cookbook of Julian of Norwich. Oh, are you not
2: gonna read how to cook a peacock?
0: Oh, I can. Let me let me pull up part of it. Yes, I can definitely do that. Uh let me let me find it. Yeah, if it's it.
2: long, you can just give us a sample. Wait, did you say Julian of Norwich?
0: Yeah, that was the that was the, the next Saint? one. Yes.
2: I'm excited about this, but tell us how to cook peacocks <laughs> first.
0: Don't don't get your hopes up too high. Alright, so I'll just pick a random recipe here. I'll just flip through the pages and I'll stop there. Okay. Here is a cow pasty. For those of you who are unfamiliar with pasties or think of like pumpkin pasties from Harry Potter, they're basically like um turnovers. They're little
2: They're like calzones but less Italian.
0: Yeah. you can fill them with anything. They're little they're like the original hot pocket. Okay. For cow pasty, take cheese cut in strips and a large amount of sugar, true cinnamon and a bit of assorted spice. Fry onion in butter. Once the pasty is high and raised, meaning the pastry itself and rounded, gilded well. Then put Put it in the oven.
2: I like the implication that someone's circulating counterfeit cinnamon, and it's become such a thing that they have to specify.
0: I believe that a lot of people would just use like bark of a tree, like if it was dark to enough. Be fair,
2: cinnamon is tree bark.
0: But if you don't, if you're not familiar with what it already smells like and what it tastes like,
2: oh, just bark of any tree.
0: Yeah, it's gonna look the same.
2: Fair. <laughs> They're like, no, you need you need the right bark. You need the real bark. The
0: real stuff. The good stuff. I really like that there's actually no cow besides the cheese in this cow pasty.
2: Yeah, I I looked through uh, some of the ones in form of curry and noticed that the meat was often just like a suggestion or like a broth and not necessarily actually part of the recipe.
0: I suppose that could either speak to the wealth of the people cooking it or I don't even I I mean, I don't know.
2: Well, I also feel like people didn't eat meat as much as modern Americans do.
0: Oh, no, definitely not.
2: Like the, the idea of of meat being in every meal is definitely like a late 20th century American invention mm-hmm. unless I mean, obviously, there are some parts of the world where you do eat meat with every meal, like up in the Arctic Circle, where like things don't grow so much.
0: Yeah, and then you're only eating meat. (laughs) You're eating meat and berries.
2: In medieval Europe, meat was not an everyday thing.
0: Yeah, definitely not, especially based on, you know, classes and social standing and so on and so forth. A lot of the times you wouldn't have a major breakfast or any breakfast at all. You might have a loaf of bread that you took with you to work or that you ate on your way to Mm -hmm. work. And that you can still see reflected in some French and Italian culture where, you know, they might get a coffee and a croissant on their way.
2: Clearly, I've been on the internet too much because my first thought was you might see that reflected in like the trope of a schoolgirl running around with a piece of toast in her mouth.
0: I think that's just an anime trope. I know that. it's just I an anime trope. I don't
2: even watch <laughs> anime. I just see it being like mocked on on the internet. It's like, why is this oh, always a thing no. that they do? And I'm like, I don't know. That's weird. And then you said that, and I'm like, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's it. Because
0: it's cause it's a signifier that that character is too busy. I think that's what it's trying to say. I don't know.
2: I might cut that.
0: I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't dissect anime, okay? I'm here for the medieval <laughs> stuff. Unless you have a medieval anime girl for me, then. I'm sure
2: they exist, but again, I don't know anything <laughs> oh, no, 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 about the no. genre.
0: They, they do exist. This is a, this is a very specific shout out to anyone who watches or reads or plays Fate, which is a series that takes historical heroes and completely animes them. So King Arthur is a girl and she's wearing plate mail. And there's a lot going on there. Is she still called Arthur? She's called Saber. Oh, okay. Because she, you know, she's got her little sword. I don't know. I don't know the whole lore. I just know that this is a thing. You'll be pleased to hear that Kakulan is very much a twink who does not have a beard. He's very skinny. (laughs)
2: Well, he's supposed to be. That's fair.
0: Well, yes. Yeah, so it works.
2: Is he still a dangerous psychopath?
0: Absolutely, he is.
2: I'm debating whether to read this, but I, I again, I'm I'm not a fan of the genre, so I'm sure I wouldn't be. I wouldn't enjoy it. Like a lot of the genre tropes, just rub me the wrong way. It's one of those things
0: that like if you don't get into at the right time, or if if you don't take the time to learn the tropes, you look at it and it's completely alien to you.
2: Now that we've talked but about anyway. this, I'm going to have to leave in the bit about the schoolgirls with toast. <laughs>
0: Oh no. Oh boy. Anyway, so yeah, that is our recipe for cow pasty, which is essentially just like like a sweet cheese spiced hot pocket.
2: I can't help but notice that it did not include any peacock.
0: It did not. I'm sure that there is a recipe for peacock in here. Let me go back to the table of contents.
2: Wait, so is the book called How to Cook a Peacock? Yes, that
0: is what the translation is called. Like this guy <sighs> translated it and called it How to Cook a That's Peacock. Fair. Yes. Cause you know, it's a snappy title. It's a good title. There's some French words. Oh dear. Oh, here we go. To make pheasant and peacocks in full display. It does not actually give me a page number for this. Let me see if I can find it. Fried fresh butter. Nice. You can still get that at country fairs. Uh, Ah, okay. Roast peacock. Also like swan eaten with a little salt. And then there's in brackets, this document does not include a recipe for swan. This reference is one indication of the manuscript's general incoherence.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, it's that French ergot poisoning.
0: You know, it's it's something. There's, you know, there's also um, pheasants, river ducks, heron, turtle doves, assorted small birds. I mean, it's it's fairly really straightforward. Pluck while dry. Restore in water. Lard. Roast. Eat with salt. Also in pastry. That's pretty standard for roast bird. <laughs> you're you're making quite the face.
2: I don't know what to do with that.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. All right, we'll move on to the next All one. Right. The next one is the cookbook of Julian of Norwich. Now, Julian of Norwich, unfortunately, did not actually create oh. a cookbook. I know. I'm sorry. I told you not to get your hopes I, up.
2: I was hoping that it because like. For the listeners, Julian of Norwich was known for like having divine visions. Like that was her thing. So I was hoping we were going to get like an angel told me how to make beef.
0: <laughs> I mean, we do, we do have Hildegard, which, which I discovered. So we'll go through some of Hildegard's tips and tricks. I do for- like her. Oh, she's great. She's wild. Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to her. So this is written by Ellen Juana and it's a great little book. It's very fun. It combines fun facts about Julian with recipes and anecdotes. Um, she was an anchoress. So those are the nuns who live in their little cells attached to a church.
2: Also known as one of the best jobs.
0: Indeed. All the recipes are from the 14th century, but they are not hers. This is food that she would likely have eaten or made before she became an anchorite. And this recipe book also uses modern measurements. So it's very easy to do. So if you're looking for something that is interesting to learn about Julian or learning about little tidbits of medieval cooking, but it's also still easier to do and work with, I would highly suggest this book. Let's see. We've got wafers, a dozen eggs beaten, three cups of flour, a third a cup of sugar, a tablespoon of ginger, one and a half cups grated cheddar cheese, and a half teaspoon of salt. Beat together all ingredients to make a thick batter. Use a modern waffle iron to make wafers, being careful to clean the melted cheese from the waffle iron between batches. The finished wafers should be light brown. Serve hot or cold with honey. Makes about 10 waffles. So there you go. These are, these are just cheesy waffles.
2: That sounds good. I like cheesy waffles.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's very, uh, very much accessible to the modern audience. This would be something I think that would be great to do if your kids are into history. Or if you want to get your kids into history, you can be like, we're eating medieval wafers today. Because the author did take the time to go through and make sure that these are medieval recipes and then adapt them. Mm-hmm. So it's very accessible. There's Here's one for Goose and also stuffing. So there we go.
2: So Julian here is just a like a mascot, like a, a symbol of her time.
0: Yes, basically. Right. I think these this author really liked Julian and was like, hey, I'll, I'll make She's a She's got a lot here. of fans. Yeah.
2: Which include, by the way, while I'm on the topic, Marjorie Kemp.
0: <laughs> Indeed. I, why am I not surprised?
2: They overlap. At one point in Marjorie Kemp's autobiography, she mentions visiting Julian.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Alright, so there's that one. So that one's a little bit more of like easier, easier stuff to get into. And the next one that I have is called Medieval Cuisine of the Islamic World, A Concise History with 147 Recipes by Lilia Zawali. I think that's how you pronounce it. There's a lot of vowels in a row. This is a fantastic book. It's very, very well produced. It's got a very thorough history and look at the culture of the Islamic world at the time. It's incredibly well researched. And I'm talking like these are all okay. right academic article chapters and essays between these recipes. So, you know, if you're really geeking out about this stuff, you want to learn a lot about it, but also you want to cook something cool and elegant and fun at your next dinner party, this is the book I would recommend. The recipes are well translated and they have a good use of original language and many times no measurements. Use of brackets is also included to make portions clear where the translation is very loose. So this is not only accurate to the recipes that it's using, the original recipes It's using but it's also incredibly well researched So if you're looking for something that you can Use that is also you may have to Interpret parts of it then I would suggest this one And let's see where to go It also includes A list of California studies in food and Culture including things like Dangerous tastes the story of Spices eating right in the Renaissance this one's fun Camembert a national Myth
2: what which is (laughs) It exists I've seen it (laughs)
0: <laughs> Camembert, a national myth by Pierre Boissard So, if you know, you can find that article And figure out if Camembert is actually a national myth or not Hmm Let's see. Zifandel, A History of a Grape and Its Wine. Tsukiji, The Fish Market at the Center of the World.
2: That's some hollow earth nonsense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Art of Cooking, The First Modern Cookery Book. The Eminent Maestro, Martino of Como. So that seems very Italian Renaissancey. The Spice Route, A History. Let's see. And the rest are more or less more modern. But there you go. So I I found that to be intriguing. There's plenty of stuff to read in there. And a lovely forward index of recipes. Let's see. And they're all organized by sections. So cold appetizers, bread and broth, sweet and sour dishes, roasts, things like that, meat, poultry, fish. And it gives you the, I suppose it would be Arabic terms. So we've got, let's see, sit al shana, which is meat with taro, fish, siquaj in the fish section. So anyway, I found this one to be very intriguing, a lot of fun, definitely going to have to try some of those. Yes, there's also desserts, candied pears, semolina cakes with date paste, stuffed dates, Yeah, lots of fun stuff there. So highly recommending those. All right. And then on my list, I've got some websites. So if you're not actually looking for like a chonky book to get, even though I think these books would be very fun Christmas presents. But if you're looking for just something, you want to play around with this idea of cooking something medieval. The first one I have is called Good Cookery and... I sent all of these to you, Max, so you can pull these up if you want. Yeah,
2: I happen to know that the Good Cookery web uh, link you sent me says not to use broccoli in your faux medieval cooking. Zoe.
0: Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was a new world food. I should have put cabbage with it or something. But broccoli is what I had on hand.
2: I don't think it is a new world food. It just wasn't used in medieval cooking.
0: In food. Yeah. But yes, it does have a page with foods to never use. Things like cocoa, chocolate, coffee, things that are either new world foods or they didn't actively cook with them. Let's see.
2: Like a coffee is listed even though it was known in the medieval world. But this is talking about mm-hmm. medieval. Europe, and it hadn't really become a thing in Europe. I think it originated in the Islamic world.
0: Allspice is also listed here, which is interesting. The website listed as a New World food item, also called a Jamaican pepper. I was going through some of Hildegard's stuff today, and she includes a lot of spices that I didn't expect to see. So you can fudge this a little bit depending on whether you want to be super, super strict about your foods being European only, or if you want to say like, oh, well, you know, some trade caravan came through my fictional medieval European town, and I got this, that, and the other thing. But there are some foods that you basically shouldn't use at all, including cocoa, chocolate, things like that. So take that with a grain of salt. But that's a fantastic website to go through.
2: I do want to highlight one thing on this page, which is the entry... For bananas, which mentions that they are known, but you couldn't really bring them to Europe because they didn't last long enough to be transported all the way there. And there's a note that says Sir John Mandeville writes of them in his travels and refers to them as long apples. <laughs> I love that. I like, we've got to do Mandeville at some point.
0: Oh, we should. Also, this is interesting to me that he says long apples in particular, because apple was kind of a generic term for any kind of Mm
1: fruit-related
0: food. Because a lot of the time people will go back and read in Genesis, like, oh, Adam and Eve ate the apple. And it's like, okay, was it an apple? Or what sort of fruit was it? We don't really know. It's sort of like how the Old English word for creature or animal is deer so like hmm that's very specific but it is technically something a little bit more broad so
2: we still kind of use apple that way like we've got a lot of things that are like the something apple like pine apple Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah very true
2: palm de terre for potato
0: palm de terre apple apple of the earth yes and of
2: course pomegranate also means the some kind of apple apple with
1: grains
0: yes yeah very true
2: everything's an apple
0: everything's an apple just one of those catch-all words The next website I have is Medieval Feasts, which is a great resource. It doesn't have too many recipes, but for the recipes that it does have, it provides the medieval text with a measurement adaption to use. And it is compiled by an SCA guy who looks towards accuracy and accessibility. So for those who are less familiar with the SCA, that is the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is essentially like Renaissance fairs, but really trying to be more accurate, less about selling stuff and less about spectacle and more about like, hey, we're going to do a medieval reenactment.
2: Way nerdier and less commercial renaissance fairs. Yeah. Sounds really cool. I've never gotten involved with it specifically, but a lot of the like material they put out because they do have like publications is yes, surprisingly yes good and really mm-hmm. well-researched.
0: Yeah, like really, really well-researched. And it drives me crazy sometimes when you see academics getting really snooty about people who participate in, in the SCA, because I think that those two groups should really come together because they're looking for the basically the same thing. And have you ever heard about those academics will be trying to figure something out, they'll find some tool or something and they pick it up out of an archaeological dig and they're like, we don't know what this is. Mm-hmm. And then some tradesman looks at it and he's like, oh yeah. I know what that is. We still use that.
2: Like the the bone polisher.
1: A bone polisher is a tool made from bone that's used to burnish leather, not a tool that is used to polish
2: bones. Fun fact, some archaeologists believe it was originally made by Neanderthals, which would mean it's a tool currently used by
1: humans that was originally invented by another intelligent species.
0: Yes, exactly. And it's like, yeah, we still use that. It's the exact same thing. And so sometimes you do have to have someone try and reenact this or know a lot about, quote unquote, living in that time to understand it. So anyway, I'm here for it. As long as, you know, everyone respects everyone, then whatever. So Medieval Feasts, great little website. It is fairly short. There's not a whole lot there, but what is there is really well researched. The next one I have is the food timeline, which is super, super cool. This goes from like the very beginning of time itself. Like the first recipe is water. That is the first recipe. It's the first thing listed. I guess
2: that's accurate. (laughs)
0: And then it goes all the way down to 2009 and 2007 with such things as Kool-Aid pickles and cake pops. I don't like the idea of a Kool-Aid pickle, but sure.
2: That sounds terrible.
0: (laughs) But if you're looking for, you know, something affixed within Jell-O, take a look at their 1940 section, 1960 section, whatever. If you're looking for something from the 1800s, so on, great stuff there. There's also Roman recipes. Recipes, which are very cool, but we sort of dug into the medieval section, or at least I dug into them. It lists, for instance, the form of curry, which was published in 1390. There's also things like fried cheese sticks. Like, it's a mozzarella stick, and it tells you the history of the mozzarella stick as it was in the medieval world. How cool is that? I love the food timeline. Super cool. Great for writers. All right, the next one I have, so there are two online medieval cookbooks that I was able to find. The first one is A Proper New Book of Cookery, which is a 16th century work, and I will link that, and it talks about You know, first course, second course, the first service at supper, the second course, the service at dinner, so on and so forth. Actually, question, do you differentiate between supper and dinner? Yes. Okay, so for those uninitiated, because I grew up in a a household where it was basically like the same word, but you you could use it interchangeably. So that is not how they used it back in the day. So how did they use it and how do some people still use it, at least in America?
2: Ooh, I don't know how they used it back in the day, but the way I've always understood it is the largest meal of the day is dinner, but the evening meal is supper. And those usually overlap, but they don't always.
0: Oh, I like that.
2: So if you have Thanksgiving dinner at like 1pm, then it's still dinner, but Mm -hmm. it's not supper.
0: It's not supper. That makes sense.
2: I don't know if that's the medieval usage. That's just how I know it.
0: That feels correct. I know supper is a smaller meal. I'll have to double check on that one. But it is a great little cookbook. There's plenty of fun little things here. Again, it is a medieval cookbook. There's not a lot of guidance. You sort of take it as you go. So here we go. Tart of cheese. Take hard cheese and cut it in slices and pare it and then layer it with fair water or in sweet milk. The space of three hours, then take it up and break it in a mortar till it be small. Then draw it up through a strainer with the yolks of six eggs and season it with sugar or sweet butter. And so bake it. Hmm, that seems okay. like a very easy to follow sort of cheese tart.
2: It does. It sounds good. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I will warn you, it is written in early modern English. Like, for instance, to bake venison, or that is to say venison, to roost venison to roast venison. So if you're pronouncing it the way it looks like it's spelled, you're going to have a hard time. So just a fair warning there. Then there is also the form of curry compiled in 1390 by the master cooks of King Richard II presented afterwards to Queen Elizabeth. So that you can find online and there is an index of recipes. This does look like a printed copy the the copy that I uh, have found Mm -hmm. and some of it does does not make a lot of sense it was a lot harder to read than the proper new book of cookery to me
2: i skimmed through it and i found myself uh, going to the middle english dictionary a lot
0: again because it is an earlier text it is 1390.
2: one of the things that struck me about it that i had to confirm with the middle english dictionary is i'm pretty sure some of these recipes call for almond milk
0: yes they do fun fat. I I don't precisely remember why I went on this tangent, but almond milk was much more common to drink and to cook with than using actual milk in the Middle Ages. Because milk itself was something, especially fresh milk, was something that was generally reserved for infants and young children or the elderly. And you had to be pretty well off to actually use milk in your cooking. But almond milk, which is just, you know, like pulled Almonds and water is a lot easier to come by, so almond milk or like hazelnut milk or other nut milks was much much more common to create. So a lot of these have have almond milk in them. Yes,
2: including what I think is a very fun title for a recipe, which is number nine: Rice of Flesh. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yep yeah, yep yeah, yep. Yeah. Take rice and wash them clean and do this in an uh, earthen pot. Put
2: put it in an earthen pot.
0: Ah, oh, yes. Put it in an earthen pot with good broth and lay them.
2: Let it seethe well.
0: Oh, let it seethe well. See, so your Middle English is much better than mine. Afterward, take almond milk and...
2: I think it means like add almond milk and then like seethe it some more.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then...
2: I don't know what colo is.
0: Well, see, the interesting part to this text is that it does have the abbreviations on top of it. So you'll see a lot of these little abbreviations. So it is very, very difficult to read.
2: It might be color.
0: Oh, yes. Color it with saffron and salt and messe forth.
2: It might just mean serve. Serve.
0: Ah, uh, yes, that makes sense. This also is printed with the S's that look like F's. You'll see this very often in, I mean, even up to the American War of Independence, the Revolutionary War, you'll see publications with S's that look like F's, but then stop, they don't go all the way down. So in case you decide to look through this, and, and you're looking at it like, why does it say rife of fluch? It's not. It's rice of flesh, Uh, but the S's just look really, really weird.
2: Yeah, I think mess it forth just does mean serve it. Mess it forth. According to the Middle English Dictionary, mess is a course or dish of prepared food sent to and served at the table.
0: Interesting. That's a great turn of phrase. I'm writing that one down. Mess it
2: forth. Mess it forth. I ran into that by accident because the first thing I clicked on when you sent me this link was the one that says fungus, which (laughs) happens to be on the same page.
0: Yes, it's very, very strange. There was also some I didn't get at all because it looked like the word looked like rape. And I'm wondering if you know what it actually is.
2: I'm pretty sure that's just a type of plant. Well,
0: right, like rapeseed. Yeah. But let me see if I can find
2: it. Turnips.
0: Turnips. Turnips. That makes so much more sense.
2: At least according to the Middle English Dictionary.
0: Ah, okay, okay. I don't know why I didn't think to look that one up. I just saw it and was like, that's not the right word for that. Turnips. All right. So anyway, that one is much more difficult to read, but still very fun to look through.
2: Also, let's note that the first two recipes are for to make Grandin beans and for to make drawin beans.
0: (laughs) I really want like some sort of game that uses this type of language and it just says for to make. Oh, that's great.
2: This is so much fun to read.
0: It's a lot of fun. It's very, very wild. Why don't you, you go through with your. First, give us like a, a Middle English recipe and then translate it for us, just so readers understand how different it looks and sounds.
2: All right. Uh, there was one that stuck out to me earlier, and I'm trying to see if I can find it again. Oh, no, but I found another one that I want to read.
0: <laughs> he's got this like glint in his eye, listeners. He's so excited.
2: This is called Lampreys in Galantine. oh.
1: Got distracted and I forgot to read the actual Middle English when we were recording, so here it is now. Lomprez in Galintin, taka lomprez and slay him with vunig of with and salt skull the hair he what slit him a little at the navel, and reft a little at the navel. Tacka out the gut at the end, kepper a well the bloder put the lamprey on a spit roost he and kepper well the grass. Grim the rasons of coranza, she up with vunig vinegar and crust of bread. Two thought. To of ylinga of galingala, flow of kanal Paudo of claw and duvato Raisons of coranza hula with the bloda and the gressa saith it and salt it, boil it not to standing, Taka up the lamprey, do he in a chargeor, and lie that on a onward, and sewer he
2: forth.
0: Very nice.
2: I just like lampreys. I like thinking about them. I think they're cool animals, but I don't like them so much that I have trouble describing how to eat them. Fair enough. So take lampreys and... Oh, wait, one more thing about lampreys, because I'm going to forget if I don't. In the excellent, excellent book by Emma Southen, A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Murder in Ancient Rome, (gasps) Yes. she describes what may be the most horrific way to kill someone I've ever heard of, which is to drop them into a tank of lampreys.
0: Yeah, that would not be a good way to go.
2: Yeah, it doesn't sound terrible, like, off the cuff, but then if you think about lampreys for a bit... Especially
0: lampreys that are already in a market, still alive, hungry.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now that that's in everyone's head... Take lampreys and slay them with vinegar. That's one way to do it. Or with white wine and salt, scald them in water. Slit them a little at the navel.
0: Do lampreys have navels or is that referring to...
2: Maybe it just means like the belly.
0: That makes sense.
2: And reft a little at the navel. There's some dots there, so there may have been some manuscript damage. Mm. Take out the gut at the end. Keep well the blood.
0: Interesting. Keep
2: it well. Well? Well.
0: Whatever that means.
2: Put the lamprey on a spit. Roast it and keep well the grease. Grind currants up with vinegar, wine, and crust of bread. Do that to powder of ginger, of gallingale.
0: What is gallengale? To the internet.
2: The roots of various plants of the genera alpinia. Oh, a lot of different things. Indeed. Um, it's a type of spice. Yes. It's an Asian type of spice, closely related to common ginger. And cinnamon, an inferior grade of cinnamon.
0: Oh, okay. So not the true cinnamon, as we talked about earlier.
2: Yeah, the 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 phrase is flower of cannel, which the Middle English dictionary says either cinnamon or an inferior grade of. Interesting. Powder of clove, and do that to currants whole. With the blood and the grease, which you have kept well, <laughs> I added that bit. <laughs> Uh, seethe it and salt it. Boil it not to standing. I assume that means something to people who cook. I think
0: it means not to a rolling boil, like a low
2: boil. Oh, okay. Take up the lamprey, put it in a charger, a, a dish, and lay on the broth. So you put it in a charger and then pour the broth on top, on top of top it. And then serve it forth. Interesting. And that is how you make lampreys and galantine.
0: I wouldn't expect to have a fish with cinnamon and clove and currant raisins. Yeah. But one of the interesting things that you will notice about medieval cooking is that it does use spices that we usually associate with sweeter things. So cinnamon, allspice, nutmeg, clove, stuff like that. Things that we associate as like, I don't know, at least I associate with Christmas spices or like pumpkin spice. Those sorts of things are used in a lot of medieval cooking, because, especially in these cookbooks, because they were spices that only the wealthy could own or procure. And so they would put that in everything to try and make it taste better. Well, either to make it taste better or just to show off their wealth. And so like, if you had something that had a whole bunch of spices in it and was really flavorful, then wow, it must taste really good because it uses these spices. Does it actually taste that good? well, it tastes of wealth, so you tell me that one.
2: Yeah, it's like how everyone's just incredibly blinged out in medieval texts. It's like, that probably looks really tacky, but that's a lot of jewels, yeah. so that must be nice. Yeah. They, they must be stylish.
0: Exactly. A lot of the spices that we associate with sweeter things, or that were adapted to sweeter things, were probably originally used with meat, and other savory sorts of dishes. Another fun note that we should talk about is that I think most of the recipes that we talked about, at least the uh, the French cookbook and the form of curry were both royal cooks and royal cookbooks and a lot of the reason for this was because you wouldn't write down common meals like common people would not write down common meals those are things that would be passed down or like oh this is the way that we cook cabbage in our household or we don't have that much money to get extra spices or oh hey we did get some extra spices so we'll just throw that onto the hunk of chicken that we're eating today so on and so forth a lot of recipes were not copied and carried down again in large part because a lot of the people who were doing the cooking were women and so of course if you were uneducated Not to say that all women were uneducated, but a large portion of women were uneducated in medieval Europe at this time, you wouldn't be able to write any of this stuff down. And if you were a cook of any kind of standing, then you would be a male cook in a royal kitchen or in a noble's kitchen or so on and so forth. We still sort of have this difference between being a chef and being a cook. And there is to this day, some gender issues with that. When you think of a chef, you generally think of a male individual versus cooks historically being women.
2: Most of those celebrity chefs are are all men mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I could get into a whole Julia Child rant about how she made very, very good French cooking accessible to a modern audience, and she was not very well liked for that in the upper echelons of cooking, but so on and so forth. Regardless, she was a very interesting woman who revolutionized cooking in America. All right.
2: Wait, hold on. There's one more I want to read because it's it's distressing.
0: Oh, (laughs) distressing.
2: Well, it depends on how you feel about things. Mostly it's the title that's distressing.
0: Fair enough. I feel like... This episode is something you could share with your friends and family at Thanksgiving, but I don't know how well it would go
2: over. I think it depends on how much they appreciate mid century cooking. True. Because this is something that I feel like people were still making in like the 50s, but now is frightening.
0: I didn't know that the medievals had jello. Oh no, why are you still grinning? No, no! All right, okay.
2: All right. Oh no. So th- this. <laughs> oh no. This recipe is entitled, Jelly of Flesh. Oh no! <laughs> Take swine feet and snout and the ears. Yep. Capons, like birds, conies, rabbits, and calf feet, and wash them clean. Put them to seethe in the third part of wine and vinegar and water, and serve forth. So you just boil it all down till it's a good, good flesh jelly.
0: Ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> is that one is that one in King Richard's Royal Cookbook?
2: Apparently. Ooh!
0: Richard! Why? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just saw that title and I was like, I have to read oh. that. I need to make sure people know about that.
0: I mean, I'm not surprised that they knew how to make gelatin like that, because that is how historically you made gelatin. Yeah. But also I can't imagine that that would either look or taste very nice.
2: No, it sounds terrible. Ooh,
0: we're just too modern for all of this. Yes. (laughs) Maybe, see, that's one of those blessings when you realize, you know what, we live in the weirdest timeline, possibly the worst timeline, but at least we live in the 21st century of the worst timeline.
2: Yeah, hey, we might see the end.
0: (laughs) Take that as, you know, take that as hopeful or not, as you will. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) Grateful for all of you. All right, should we, speaking of being grateful for our listeners, should we get into our uh, our Twitter questions? Sure. <laughs> oh, no.
2: All right, so these are the people to whom we will be sending our special flesh jelly.
0: <laughs> it's our new subscription box. You get one medieval recipe of the month. This month's special is flesh jelly.
2: <laughs> but yeah, let's get to our Twitter questions.
0: We've got one from Helena, who's saying, since all food was cooked over fire, there must have been enormous amounts of firewood required. How was that managed in cities? That is a great question. First off, much of Europe was deforested during the early and middle medieval period. So... The most blatant answer to that is that people cut down the trees and made use of them. A lot of the times there were actually, particularly in the later medieval period, the lords of the land, whether that was an abbey or a bishop or a lord of an estate or a king, etc., would very specifically rule on what people could use in the forests. So sure, you can pick up twigs, but you can't cut down trees. That Mm -hmm. is only allowed for the king's carpenter or whoever they hire. Fun fact, there was a massive difference between the woods and the forest. Woods, I believe, were specific hunting grounds or at least specific parcels of land that belonged to an individual or an estate forest was much more wild woods could be more cultivated
2: yeah i I was going to bring that up if you didn't that is correct yeah
0: yeah. that's one of my um i guess one of my little pedantic facts that i really really like because i would love to see it used in the correct way in a piece of media and i haven't yet and i'm just mm, i'm just waiting for the day that i find it but anyway so one way that Overuse of wood could be curtailed would be by banning people from, you know, cutting down trees or you know, picking up sticks, which is how a lot of abuses of power were enacted and how a lot of you know peasants and people who weren't treated well would be starved or otherwise had issues in creating a livelihood for themselves as they didn't have the ability to collect wood, for instance, or if they did, they could be criminally charged or prosecuted for that.
2: One of the other causes of deforestation and which is also a solution to the issue of getting wood into cities was charcoal.
0: Yes. Yep. Charcoal fires were also used.
2: Yeah, charcoal is lightweight and burns hotter than wood. So it's easier to transport, but it is very resource intensive to create. Mm -hmm. So you'd make it out in the forests and then like truck it in. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. One other thing to keep in mind is that oil was also used or burnt. So depending on what class you were or you know, whatever candles were often used. So you wouldn't be burning wood all of the time for everything. Yes, you'd create fires to cook your meals. But But a lot of the light that you would have during the day or during the evening would be oil or tallow or something along those lines that you would burn. So wood, wood would be used for cooking more or less specifically. This whole idea of like carrying around a torch was not incredibly accurate whatsoever, even though it is one of the cooler fantasy tropes that we have.
2: Yeah. One of the things to keep in mind is there are a lot of different options for fuel to use for your cook fires. It's not just wood. Mm -hmm. It's also, uh, you can use peat. That's why people are like cutting up peat bogs and finding the bog mummies is to get the peat.
0: Yes, peat is still often used in Ireland. I think it's one of the coolest smells In the world, but it just reminds me of like the earth and. Alaska and just oh it just smells like a wilderness it just smells like the ground and I like that but anyway
2: and if you're this is maybe not so much in the cities but in rural areas you can use dried cow dung mm-hmm. or sheep for dung your fires or sheep dung animal livestock dung in general mm-hmm. which also you can probably truck into the cities if they're willing to pay for it cities were still like major importers of goods even though they were much smaller than they are now but that also means that there is there was more wood just within a days travel Mm -hmm. or if you're near the coast dried seaweed
0: oh did not think of that one you can definitely eat the seaweed as well i haven't ever heard of it being burnt that's really interesting
2: i think that was mostly i'm like vaguely remembering this from when i was reading about the dead languages of the north sea i think in like the orkneys there was a lot of seaweed harvesting in the early modern period
0: oh that makes sense interesting
2: but I may be misremembering that. But the, the answer generally is like, they imported a lot and it wasn't always wood.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, deforestation was a big deal.
2: Yeah. And again, cities were way, way smaller. So the demand wasn't quite as high as you might imagine. And the woods weren't as far away as you might imagine.
0: And don't forget, the plagues weren't as far away as you might imagine, which really cut down on the human population at that time. True. True. Like, a lot. All right. Our other question comes from Mary Osborne. Hey, Mary. Let's see. Would love info on how medieval cooks handled food preservation outside of stuff like salting and drying. Would also love to know y'all's fave medieval recipes.
2: I feel like we share medieval recipes.
0: True. There's one that I want to get into. Alright. But that's
2: okay. Let's see. Do you want to answer this preservation one first?
0: Yes, let's definitely do that one first. So salting and drying were definitely two big ones. Curing as well. Cured
2: meats. Pickling.
0: Pickling. Definitely pickling. Very, very popular.
2: For those who need initiation, salting I think is pretty self-explanatory. One of the big things they do up in like Scandinavia and stuff is you'd hang fish on frames to dry. Mm -hmm. You'd end up with this like fish jerky Mm -hmm. that's Sounds terrible. Oh, it's really good. It's so good. But frankly, everything I hear about Scandinavian seafood dishes sounds (laughs) worrying to me. That might just be me. Like, I'm not a big seafood person or an any seafood person. Fair, fair. But pickling, also easier than you'd think. You just soak whatever it is you want to preserve, which could be meat. It could be vegetables. It could be, well, really just those two, I guess. In either brine, which is basically just a fancy word for like salt water, or vinegar, mm-hmm. which as we've established, is kind of a byproduct from improperly storing wine. So like you'll have it around and it just it, it leaves them preserved. You can so, once something's pickled, you can just leave it in its jar until you're ready to eat it. It, yep. it lasts for ages. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. There was also fermenting things you can ferment quite a bit. Hydromel was a mix of fermented honey and water that you could just use. It would be a base for a lot of medicines, things like that. I think a lot of the times we also forget that making cheeses was one way of preserving food Mm -hmm. and preserving milk. And, you know, as that became an art and creating different cheeses and so on and so forth, that would be one really, really good way because you could wrap those suckers up. Stick them somewhere cool and dry, and then you still get this melty, creamy brie with that outside rind, and you can eat that you know all year long. So cheese is a great example of something that is a preserved food that we don't consider a preserved food. Mm-hmm. Um, curing like ham, things like that would be very popular. Yeah, what
2: is curing exactly? Let
0: me make sure I'm getting this correct.
2: As a side note, while while Zoe double checks this, about salting, fun fact, corn beef does not involve corn. It's beef that's been preserved with large grains of salt that resemble corn. That's where the name comes from.
0: I like that. That's very interesting. All right. So cured meat is essentially like the next level up of salted dried meat. Basically a combination of salt and sugar and you can wrap it and seal it or you can create sort of a a pickling brining solution and then soak it and then let it dry. And so those are those are two ways to cure meat. One of the interesting things, like if you look at the outside rind of a salami, some modern salami does not do this. But if you're looking for like a genuine, really nice kind of salami, the outside of it is mold, just like blue cheese is mold.
2: Delicious mold.
0: Delicious mold. And the same thing goes for a really good salami. So you can eat it, it creates this mold. And that's another way to preserve food is with mold. Let's see, other ways of preserving things. I don't know when the first ice houses were made. I know ancient Rome had ice houses. I don't know if they continued through the medieval period. But that was one way of preserving food. It was literally like creating an early refrigerator. Usually this would be down inside of ground, putting things in barrels, putting things in old, you know, caves particularly because caves were cool that would act like a natural refrigerator so if he created a cavern and hollowed that out close to your estate or wherever you were you would create this sort of natural cavern that you could then put ice in and then put your food in there as well
2: as far as i know in europe at least it was mostly yeah caves and caverns were, were where you kept things cool yeah cellars cellars yeah, yeah
0: definitely cellars we always forget about cellars like how many times have you like chucked an onion in your fridge and then you find it 2 months later and it's perfect if it's the same principle, except instead of a fridge, you just, you know, create your downstairs cellar or you create a root cellar. Like That's why they're called that for a reason. And, you know, it's cool. It's dark. It's dry. You chuck things in barrels. It's clean. You know, you might get a couple bad apples or, you know, bad potatoes or, well, I guess not potatoes, carrots, turnips, radishes, other root mm-hmm. veggies, and leave them and seal them. And then you're set. So they really had a wide variety of foods that they could eat. And then, of course, eat seasonally. They would eat very, very seasonally. So that's something that we do nowadays, mostly because we have different price points, which they would also do back in the day. Like if you really, really wanted an Italian orange in December, you could probably find one somewhere, but it's going to be kind of expensive. And that's the same today.
2: Difficult, too, because who knows if it'll keep long enough to get all the way to you. Yeah,
0: exactly, to get to you. But that being said, eating seasonally would be one major way to preserve food is that during a harvest, you would eat... Eat things that would go out of season quickly, and then preserve everything that would remain and last through the winter.
2: Oh, and by the way, while uh, medieval Europe didn't have ice houses, medieval Persia did. Yes, there we go. Yeah, because they had ice
0: cream. Well, like the that was a known thing was ice cream
2: in the Middle East. They have you may have seen them. They're these like conical structures mm-hmm. that are like I don't I don't know how the science works. It's some like trick of how how the structure causes evaporation, or I don't know
0: <laughs> physics.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a physics thing. <laughs> that that means there's this big cold cone where you keep your ice. Mm-hmm. And that that's been going on for like thousands of years. Yeah.
0: Super cool. Alright. I think that about covers it for our food stuff. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna add? Oh, I did have one more that I wanted to add.
2: Yeah, you had a recipe you wanted to share.
0: Good. Let me find it. So this is gonna sound really obvious, but we're getting into the season. So I'm gonna bring up gingerbread. So gingerbread is one of the earliest types of I guess. Biscuit cake food thing um that is seasonal and we've had it around forever. It erupted in
2: That sounds dangerous. <laughs> that does sound
0: dangerous. That's the wrong word. That was what popped into my head. Creating gingerbread began in medieval Europe. That's when it really became a thing. And this is from an A to Z of food and drink by John A Y T O. In the 13th century, the word was originally ginger bras, which was a word borrowed from Old French, which meant preserved ginger. But by the mid 14th century, bread began to replace bras, and it was only a matter of time before sense followed form, is how he phrases it. One of the earliest known recipes for it, which is the cookbook we covered, Good Cookery, Directs it to be made with breadcrumbs boiled in honey with ginger and other spices. This is the ancestor of the modern cake-like gingerbread in which treacle has replaced honey. Gingerbread was also used to help preserve bread and to give it more flavor and spice. And the tradition of ginger biscuits, creating into little gingerbread houses was much more of an American sort of thing that erupted later, but... Ginger biscuits, also known as ginger snaps or ginger nuts, are British representatives of a much wider group of European spiced biscuits. That's pretty well known. The German name for them in general is pfeffernuss. And in Scandinavia, they are like peppernut. And our family has a recipe that we only bake for Christmas, which we call pepper nuts.
2: I was gonna say, that sounds like you're saying pepper nuts.
0: Yes, yes. So we call these pepper nuts in our family because this is where my family comes from. And they're also in German, they're pfeffernuss, but it's basically the same thing as gingerbread. Everybody has a different version of what these are. And the reason that they're called like gingerbread nuts or pepper nuts and things like that is because what you do and what we still do in my family is once you make the dough, you put like a thumb sized portion in your hand and then you roll it into a little ball. And so you bake them like little balls on the baking sheet and then you scrape them all off into a tin. And so they're these little like nut looking biscuits and you just eat them by the handful. They're wonderful. But I was surprised to see that here and see that it has sort of an earlier medieval origin because in the 18th century, they were known as gingerbread nuts in England. They originally came from Germany. And then if you go back even further, then you get into the ginger type of cookie that originated ginger snaps, pfeffernus, and gingerbread. So all of those things came from one medieval origin of using gingerbread, ginger, molasses, you know, flour and spices and putting it all together and baking it as a bread. So whether it was originally like a biscuit or a nut or a bread kind of differs based on whatever medieval recipe that you find, but that's where it comes from. So I wanted to share that because that is a family recipe that is very, very close to my heart that has a medieval origin. And I know that a lot of people like to bake gingerbread or ginger snaps or whatever they want over the holiday. So yeah, fun fact to bring up at the table. Yeah. All right. Anything else?
2: I don't think I have anything, and it's probably time to do our correspondence. That's
0: true. Let me pull it up. I'm so excited about our correspondence this week. All right. Honk, a messenger. Here it is. This is from Sam, and I will just read this message out. Hi guys, I've been listening to the podcast for a few months now, and I absolutely love it. I'm a history student, mainly American political history, and this podcast reminded me of how fascinating medieval history is. As a side hustle, I like to research historical magical practices, and I'm currently trying to piece together a somewhat coherent history on the use of ceremonial magic wands. There's lots of evidence for them in antiquity, but I can't find much on them in the medieval period. I know of a few supposed wands in the archaeological record for the early Middle Ages and their reemergence in Solomonic magic in the late Middle Ages, notably in the honor-bound Book of Honorius, but I know very little of the period in between. Considering Zoe specializes in medieval magic and Mac knows a lot about medieval Scandinavia, wands pop up in the etymology of vulva and gondlir, I was wondering whether you guys have any thoughts on the subject. I know this is a really in-depth question and you guys are busy people, so I completely understand if you don't get around to answering it. I just want you to know that seeing a new episode in my feed is one of the highlights of my week, Sam. That
2: is delightful! It's a
0: really great one, right? Oh, I love it. So thank you, Sam, for sending that in and like this got me going immediately i saw this i saw the title of like nerding out about medieval magic and i was like oh this is my thing
2: yeah so oh i'm excited about this one I have very little to contribute off the top of my head. <laughs> Most of what I've got is like there's a lot of archaeological stuff from the medieval period that's been labeled like this is a, probably a wand and then people are like maybe it's not. Maybe it's a tool for spinning.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then at a, at a certain point what is a tool and what is a, you know, ceremonial magic item? Those yeah. they can be the same thing. You know, there's plenty of times when we use, you know, you might have that special spoon that you always stir your coffee with. That's both, oh. you know. That is your magic wand, so to speak. Take that as you will.
2: One of the things I've been coming up with a lot in my uh, dissertation research, my dissertation research involves medieval alcohol, mm-hmm. is that a lot of high-status women, or at least women who are buried in a way that makes it appear that they were high-status, have fancy strainer spoons Ooh. that like you'd use to strain the spices and stuff out of your wine before you served it or your beverage of choice. So... Spoon is a good example.
0: Oh, yay. I'm glad I touched on something there. That's awesome.
2: But anyway, you know this.
0: Well, I don't know this as much as I would like, mostly because I focused on... Different types of magic. I mostly focused on what do we call, shall we say, divine magic versus practical magic, things that you do in everyday life versus like otherworldly magic, like, you know, elves, trolls, things that are quote unquote inherently magical creatures, so on and so forth. So I, I looked at that split in my dissertation, and magic wands, funnily enough, didn't come up too much because I was less interested in the use of magical items and more interested in what. What the practicalities of defining magic is. Like, how do we how do we define those things? What is actually magic for the medievals? And that's a very, very broad question that I would like to do a whole PhD on someday. But anyway, as to this question, magic wands themselves would not be so super, super popular, I believe, in most of the medieval texts that I've read, because a lot of the medieval magic that I have seen or have read about has been, quote unquote, Christian magic, which is to say things like blessings or medical rituals that you would say that include ingredients, but not necessarily any other kind of ritual except for saying a stare or prayer or so on and so forth. So in that sense, magic wands were something. Thing that were uniquely pagan. And as you said, Sam, there's a lot of use of them in antiquity. So as Christianity became the dominant religion and as other practices were pushed out, use of those rituals and elements would have been feared or pushed away or silenced. So no wonder you're having a hard time finding any research on magic wands because they would be very, very hard to find. I know that and I think you were actually asking about about this, Mac, the connection between women running brew houses and witches riding brooms.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I have some hypotheses on the link between alewives and witches.
0: Yes. So jump into that. And the reason I'm connecting these two things is that a lot of times we see a witch with a magic wand and a witch with a broom. We see both of those, for instance, in Harry Potter. And so they kind of get smooshed together. So even though it's not a magic wand, we have a magic wooden stick in, you mm-hmm. know, the broom. So Mac, take that one or dive a little bit into that one and then I'll Come back and wrap it up if you want. Sorry to put you on the spot. (laughs)
2: All right, so this is something that I haven't uh, gotten around to looking into in detail yet. It's on my list, but let's see. All right, so there are a couple interesting connections. Those archaeological remains I was mentioning before, one of the other things that was commonly found associated with women of high status both in burials and in art is a type of staff, not a wand, but a staff. Mm-hmm. And there's a suggestion that this is based on a weaving tool.
0: Ah, yes.
2: And like there's a there's a connection to the metaphor of like weaving fate
0: Mm, mm -hmm. or spinning fate that's a that's a very greek idea
2: yeah you see uh like norn like figures or or fate like figures working on looms and stuff in in medieval texts and so there's a connection there Mm -hmm. and brooms are connected with witches for a variety of reasons and there's a lot of kind of urban myths around it. And I don't want to get into trying to separate it out because I'll probably say something that's incorrect.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I've heard, I have I have heard the illusion that riding a broom, like the reason that witches rode brooms was like they were riding the devil.
2: That's a new one on me.
0: Oh, really? I, like the reason for that is like, if you're going to ride a broom, you kind of have to straddle your legs over it. And then, you know, you've got a piece of wood between your legs and I'll just let that one sit there.
2: Yeah, there is that. <laughs> So there was an idea that, and if if you are trying to be family-friendly, you may want to skip forward a few minutes, that what you would do is you would uh, rub ointment onto a broom. Ointment that's made of, like, psychoactive or hallucinogenic herbs. Mm. And then you would apply that broom to certain mucus membranes... In a way that might suggest that you were riding it. Or to quote a 15th century author, anoint themselves under the arms and in other hairy places.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I had not heard
2: that one. The reason that this came to be flying on the broom is because one of the herbs commonly associated with witches that would have been used if this is is true and not just something made up by people trying to vilify women mm-hmm. is henbane, uh, yep. which supposedly gives a sensation of flying.
0: The only really big thing that I have to say to that is how do they know? Like either they talked to a witch who is like, yeah, I totally flew or they had firsthand experience.
2: You could say that maybe it's based on like testimony from like a former witch or a witch on trial or something, Yeah, which would be late middle ages slash early modern.
0: Or, you know, you get you get that game of telephone, like some guy who's in testimony, like who's testifying and he's like, she said she was flying around the town and so on and so forth.
2: The point is, this could be a broom or just a staff, as it's described in the case of Alice Kyteler. Kyteler? Kyteler? I don't know how to say it. I've got a, like, translation of her trial because all the materials survive somewhere around here, and we'll do it one of these days.
0: Definitely, definitely.
2: It refers to her having a, a pipe of ointment wherewith she greased a staff upon which she ambled and galloped. So, like, there's... There's some connection there.
0: Bringing new meanings to the phrase magic wand.
2: And this links back to the alewife thing uh, in a couple ways. I mean, there's the obvious, like, you could use a staff to stir, like, your mixtures before right. you serve them. But also, the traditional sign that you put out if you were selling ale was an ale steak, which would be a staff or a broom mm-hmm. that you'd attach over the door of the house where you were selling. hmm and so there's, there's like a lot of stuff going on with staffs and brooms and similarly shaped objects, but these are all larger than, I think, than the wands that we were trying to talk about.
0: True, but there's also, when you think about types of magic. I'm, I'm immediately thinking of, for instance, Moses and the magicians that he faces off with in Egypt. They had staffs, and Moses had a staff mm-hmm. that would turn into a snake. So I think historically speaking, most magic wands were staffs of some sort, and then how they became shorter and turned into the modern magical wand today is you know up for debate, but I would consider a magical staff to be a type of magical wand. I'd put them in the same category.
2: There might be some connection as, as Sam alluded to with scandinavian magic i don't know if there is like dedicated wands but one thing that you would do is um people often carve runes onto little sticks Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sometimes just as a means of communication there are stories of them being used basically as medieval texts like you'd write (laughs) a message on a stick and just throw it in the window of whoever you wanted to talk to (laughs) oh man But there are also bits in the sagas where they talk about like, oh, he carved a rune stick and it acts like a magic spell. But it's like a one use thing. Like it's a spell component or a scroll, not a wand.
0: There is one that I really like. Oh, there's two instances that I really like that I can think of that are a bit like that. There is one... I. they might both be in a Skylight Grimson saga, but I don't remember. So, but I know that they're in one of the various sagas. The first one is our hero, if you can call him that, comes upon- Protagonist. Our protagonist comes upon a house where a girl is very, very ill. And he discovers that there is a carved stick, a magic wand, if you will, with runes on it. And what he did was he tried to make her love sick for him. But instead, he just made her really really sick. So this kid didn't know how to use magic, he messed with it, he tried it. He put it under her pillow, under her bed, under her mattress, whatever, and got her really sick. So he had to scrape off those runes and burn it in order to get the magic to go away. So that's the first one that I thought of. The second one that I thought of was something called a, I think it's either called a Nithing pole or a Nithing pole, and these are so cool and you sort of do one in one of the Witcher 3 quests, which I oh, I just so cool that they put this in there.
2: Neath is Old Norse for scorn, by the way. Yes. So it's a scorn pole.
0: Yeah, so you're cursing somebody. And the most traditional way of doing this is that you take a horse's head and you like stick it on a pole facing that person and you carve runes into it to curse them. And one of the things you can do to stop that or to change it, I think one of the things that he does in the saga is turns it the other way so it reflects back on him and not on the person who's being cursed or like was meant to be cursed originally so that's the other one i can think of because it's a horse head on a stick which is a magic staff so (laughs) you got the ruins on there (laughs) don't give me that look if you don't have a really cool header on the top of your staff are you really that cool of a wizard i'm
2: just i'm just thinking that like harry potter would be very different if everyone were using that kind of wand
0: (laughs) oh man yeah, it would be it would be very strange. Gandalf would be a little less friendly looking if he had a like a horse skull on his on his staff.
2: Maybe I mean if it's cleaned off, like if it's just the skull, then it's cool. But if there's still rotting flesh, <laughs> then like I have concerns.
0: Yeah, that's valid. But anyway, those are the those are the two other ones that I thought of. But this really got to be in my bonnet, so I want to do some digging about this. We've got some other cool stuff coming up. So Sam, I'm sorry, we probably won't get to this until the new year. But... Believe me, I am looking. I will be doing some research. And if anybody has anything to add, any other anecdotes or resources that they want to chuck in here on our little quest on Sam's Quest for Medieval Magic Wands, please, please, please let us know. You can do that on Facebook. You can do that on Twitter, Instagram. You can contact us via email or on our website. Whatever you want to do, just get in touch with us. Let us know. Uh, But yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this. And I will definitely want to cover it when I can dig up more information. All right. Anything else to cover? I think that's about it. I think so. All right. I suppose with that, have a wonderful holiday break if it is... Such a holiday for you where you are. And if not, try some of these recipes, see if they work, check out some of these websites and give some love to the people who have put a lot of hard work into maintaining them and updating them because they're pretty
2: cool. And if you're one of our international listeners, of which we have a number, yes, including a, a lot. lot of people in Denmark for some reason, I'm sorry for being so American at you today.
0: <laughs> and it had to come through American at some point. American
2: holidays.
0: Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Alright, guess that wraps us up.
2: Yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify.
2: Uh, When I was doing uh, a Middle English course a few years ago, I remember being... Like, staring at the word heron was just spelled like hey (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And going like, I know this is a bird from context, but I can't even think of what that would be. And then someone like read it out loud, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> it's I'm an a, it's idiot. A weird.
0: Yeah, because you start you start getting into the lilt <laughs> of what Middle English sounds like, and then you look at it, you look at a word that is obviously also a modern English word, but you're pronouncing it the Middle English way, and you don't realize that it's an actual word that you know.
2: Yeah, which is actually what just happened. Oh,
0: okay. Which word is this?
2: Uh, the phrase which was tripping me up is "raisons of horants oh which means currants or raisins
0: yes dried well does it mean (laughs) dried like dried currants like raisins made out of currants instead of grapes
2: uh it means a a currant, which is uh a a raisin from Porinth. oh okay i see yes yeah but grind those those